It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. What are you talking about? You looked outside, we haven't seen the sun. In how long now? We're not going to see the sun for a little while. I'm not doing the show from San Diego. I'm in downtown London, and it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. This is our weather. We just deal with it. It'll be okay. We'll see the sun again. We're into the instances part of the calendar. We don't count sunshine in days. We count it in minutes. And that's what we like to do in southwestern Ontario. And we're proud of it, right? Something like that. On the show today, we are going to actually head outside of London, Ontario. In fact, let's just head outside our own atmosphere. Why don't we actually maybe even head outside our own solar system? You ready for a ride on this? We are going to be talking with Paul Gilster, and we're going to be going over some of the fallout from Wumuamua. That's one for the spelling bee. Hey, Scripps, you, you want to get some people on the second or third round? Throw Wumuamua at them. That is that object that was picked up about a year ago. Remember hearing about this? You may have heard about it just a few weeks ago. But we want to look at the shakeout from all of this. It's an object that all they could do was get an artist's rendering. And maybe this was the issue. If you say to an artist, render me a thing that no one has actually seen that was millions of miles away and then show it to the world. And what the artist rendered was kind of this rocky tube. But they're not really sure that that's what that was. And there's a weird thing about it. It came into our solar system from somewhere else. Don't know where. And it kind of wheeled by the sun, and phew, it was gone. I don't think it made that noise. It might have. I doubt it. But it was gone. And then the scientists got into it and said, wait a minute, look at this, look at this, look at this. Maybe this wasn't a rock. Maybe this was something else. And some guys from Harvard actually put out a paper saying, yeah, this could have been something else. This could have been something not man-made, but made by somebody. And that's... Kind of got a lot of eyes looking upward. Could it have been a probe? Well, we'll talk with Paul Gilster, and he is somebody who is an author, he's a writer, writes a lot about science and space exploration. Great guy, and he'll be on the show in about a half hour from now. Remember yesterday we had the emergency test and we kind of took the straw poll? Thank you for answering. Thank you for all of the emails that we got and all of the calls that we got saying, yeah, I got it. Here are my cases, situations. Here's why I don't think I got it. And then we actually got a great theory from Glenn that we're going to put to the test today. Glenn said, hey, not everybody got the emergency test. What if it actually had to do with whether or not your phone had LTE coverage? So in other words, whether you were in Wi-Fi range or provider range instead of on 3G. So we'll put that theory to the test today because we'll actually invite Martin Belanger, who you heard from earlier this week when Devin Peacock was hosting London Live. He's going to be back on the show, and we'll talk a little bit about how the emergency test went, what exactly they're doing with this thing, why we go through this now, it seems, every six months. So we'll discuss that. Rita Feeder's going to join us from the Dream Lottery. We'll talk about lighting of the lights and the Santa house. And in just about eight minutes, we're going to be in conversation with Ken Babby, who's the head coach of Canada's para hockey team. And the Canadian Tire Para Hockey Cup is actually getting underway this weekend in the city of London. And this is a fantastic event. If you remember when the World, as it was called then, World Sledge Hockey Challenge came to London, Ontario, it was an unbelievable event. And this is kind of the same thing. 
This is kind of like instead of the World Hockey Championship, you bring in the World Cup. So you're bringing in the best of the best para-ice hockey players on the planet. And that makes for a lot of great competition. It'll be happening at Western Fair. So we'll talk more about that in just a little while as well. So a jam-packed show. I'm interested to know how the lighting of the lights is put together. And you know what else we're going to be able to get into? We're going to be able to talk with somebody who has benefited from the giving and the kindness uh, this time of year. And I can't wait to do that as well. As far as General Motors goes, if you want to log on to 980cfpl.ca, you can read the latest. Uh, Premier Doug Ford, union leaders, politicians, uh, they're being accused of selling false hope on the GM closure in Oshawa. And somebody said it this way, and I thought it was really interesting to hear it put this way, that a few years ago, General Motors was able to do up a new deal with the government. And that new deal essentially helped to continue the operation of the plant. And this time around, there was no push for a deal like that. That, you know, maybe something was said the last time to, you know, the the suggestion that this would be it. That they were going to turn in a different direction. And... What this does to the auto industry, it doesn't bode well for manufacturing in Ontario, but where the auto industry is headed, I mean, are are we seeing some of the major companies now take a big turn? You know, I I always get a kick out of the people who say, and, and I drive a Ford. In fact, we own two Ford vehicles, but I always get a kick out of those bumper stickers that say, you know, out of a job yet, keep buying foreign. You've seen those. And yet, if you look at the actual difference between whether it is Ford, whether it's GM, whether it's Chrysler, whether it's Toyota, the parts are coming from the same place. And all of the manufacturers seem to have models that are almost the same. They have different names, but they're basically the same vehicle. So for a long time, we've been headed in that direction. And now... Where does GM head next? As we talked about yesterday, this is one of two things. It is corporate greed or it is looking toward the future and starting to create vehicles that are going to be needed over the next 10, 20 years. I don't know which it is. I'm not smart enough to know that. I don't think any of us are. But we'll wait and find out as we move along. So that's something else to pay attention to as well. There is some thought that we're going to have a big announcement later today in the city Coming from, well, I don't even know how much I can give away, but be ready. There's there's a big announcement coming up later today. So we will not have that during the show, it looks like, but we will have that in our afternoon news. Let's take a break. I want to line up exactly what the Canadian Tire Para Hockey Cup is all about. It's going again this weekend. Don't forget, December 2nd is not just the kickoff to that event. It is Teddy Bear Toss at Budweiser Gardens. So if you're headed to the game, start doing some shopping, grab some plush toys, and maybe if you already have a ticket to Sunday's game between the London Knights and the Sarnia Sting, you might want to pull that out of your pocket and take a look at it. And if it says that you are seated in the first few rows, you may want to bring at least a cushy hat. Perhaps a light helmet and put that on as the goal is scored because you get pelted with all kinds of plush toys. Some of them have plastic eyes. Try and find the soft ones if you're up high. 
You also want to find the aerodynamic ones if you're up high. The ones that are shaped like, oh, I don't know, a baseball, because that's about the only way you're going to get them out onto the ice. Otherwise, they help the people in the front rows who likely won't be wearing cushy hats or helmets of any kind. So just be warned if you have tickets that are down near the glass. Sunday is an interesting day. It's always a lot of fun, and all the toys are collected up and distributed by the Salvation Army, and they will go into hampers for a lot of kids who could use a smile at this time of year. Next up, what the Canadian Tire Para-Hockey Cup in London is all about, and we'll talk with the head coach of Team Canada. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Again, we head out of our solar system in about 25 minutes. We will talk about that object that may or may not have been made by some other civilization. Is there a chance? Yeah, there's a chance. That makes it kind of cool. I keep waiting for, and I'm not typically a guy who wears a lot of tinfoil hats. I, I own a tinfoil hat, sure. But... I keep waiting for the day if extraterrestrials happen to arrive, and I keep waiting for them to kind of land here and go, what have you been doing? What are you doing? What's with all this Facebook stuff? You know, what, what's all this relationship stuff? And all these bundles of emotion. What are you doing? What have you actually constructed? And then we can say, well, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. And they'll say, our civilization cracked that in the first thousand years. You guys have to put the emotions aside. Get something done, will you? That's what I keep waiting for. Either that or they'll just come down and make us into pets. I don't know. But what is this probe-like object all about? 25 minutes from now, we'll have hopefully the answers for you. Right now, we want to talk about an event that is nearly here. Kicks off on Sunday. Team Canada is going to be in action at 7 o'clock at night, so you can make this an amazing doubleheader day of hockey. You can see the Knights in the Sting in the afternoon, throw your teddy bear down onto the ice, make a whole lot of people happy. And then at 7 o'clock, you turn around and you head to Western Fair Sports Center and you can see Game 1 of the Canadian Tire Para Hockey Cup because Canada is coming. In fact, Canada, I can tell you right now, is officially here. The United States is coming and Korea is coming. And if you start thinking about hockey powers in the world, Korea has themselves on the radar, but typically... You know, if we go back to the Olympics, they were there more as host than anything else, right? Not in para-hockey. This is a little bit different. Joining us right now is a man who can fill us in on all of this. He is the head coach of Team Canada, Ken Babby. Ken, great to talk with you. How are things? Great, Mike. How are you? Not bad. Let's kind of look at this three-team configuration and what you make of it in terms of, of tournament. Do you like it in that you don't have to watch as much video? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's going to be uh, good competition. We have three of the best teams in the world, obviously, here. And so uh, we'll see how we all do. Canada and the United States are usually easy to figure out when you're talking about best hockey powers in any kind of hockey. But Korea, this is one that may raise some eyebrows. How good is Korea when it comes to para-hockey? Well, Korea is uh, the defending uh, bronze uh, Paralympic champions. The year before that, they won a bronze medal at the World Championships, so back-to-back -back bronzes for them. And uh, 
they're a very good team. They're uh, an older team with a lot of uh, bigger guys, and uh, you know uh, they spent about uh, I would say five six years getting ready for the uh, last year's Paralympics, which they hosted, and uh, the program's really taken off. And so uh, they're going to be uh, strong competition for uh, both USA and Canada. They have older players do they have an older program or is this something they put together kind of in short fashion the last little while yeah i think uh, it's fairly new program uh, uh from my uh, recollection it would be just before um Sochi, they started going in their program because they knew they were going to be hosting in uh 218 so i think it's been about a seven-year journey probably for them and uh they certainly uh have come a long way in that time and that's the interesting thing I think about Paralympic sports in general is that it's uh, not the same as the able-bodied sports where it takes, you know, more pool players, a longer time to rise up the ladder, so to speak. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of will and athletic skill and uh, strong training, you can uh, get good quickly and uh, be in contention. We are talking with Ken Babby, head coach of Team Canada, as we look ahead to the kickoff of the Canadian Tire Para Hockey Cup, which comes up on Sunday at Western Fair. And in fact, there will be games Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then gold medal time comes up on Saturday. Ken, when you look at your club, how has it changed in the last little while? Well, I think there's been a, uh, a big change in the fact that, uh, you know, six of our veteran players, uh, veteran to uh, Para Ice Hockey for Team Canada, People like Greg Westlake, Adam Dixon, Brad Bowden, Steve Arsenal. Uh, these gentlemen have played, uh, you know, for 12 years or more and were the core of the program. Um, and now they've, uh, you know, uh, elected to move on and take a gap year. And uh, they might retire, they might not. We'll see. But for this year, they're not here. And it's allowed us to uh, bring up uh, six new players from our development team and uh, mix that in with some of the veteran players from last year's team but these veteran players they're returning to to new roles new assignments new line mates and so it makes for a real newness about us i think which brings a lot of energy and a lot of uh, potential and uh, this tournament is going to really show us how we stack up tyler mcgregor is a name that is known in this part of the world for the success he has had he is someone who was introduced to para hockey because he had his leg amputated in a battle with cancer are we seeing players now who maybe are much younger getting into the sport and then growing up through the ranks exactly and that's the uh, most recent uh, transition uh, in the sport i believe i mean uh, like Korea, the players used to be mostly older gentlemen. Uh, now it's changed. We're, you know, our team alone here, we have four guys under 20. We have, uh, I think 13, 14 guys under 25 and about, uh, 17 under 30. I mean, uh, you know, we have a couple 30 year old players, uh, with Billy Bridges and those guys, but most of our guys are in that range of Tyler and younger. So, you know, it bodes well for the program. I was telling, uh, one of our assistant coaches last night that, you know, the, this team together uh, could stay together for the next three Olympics. I mean, that's uh, that's an interesting, uh, that's a great thing for Canada. Wow, that is that is impressive. If you, if you know you've got that. Now, another part of this is that you have players that come from all over the country. How do you possibly get them together enough to kind of keep that team cohesion? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, we have a national team, so we are spread out from B.C. to Newfoundland. Uh, 
and our team's uh, team is, is set up that way. Fortunately, uh, the Canadian Paralympic Committee uh, owned the podium, and Hawk Canada have uh, given us opportunities through resources funding so that we can have uh, either a training camp or events every month. And plus, in regional areas, wherever guys are, Ontario or out west, they have uh, every two weeks some regional camps on the weekends where our assistants will go run it up. Our guys are 24-7 athletes. They have a dry land training programs, et cetera, which are monitored and they're tested just like any other athlete. So it is a full-time high-performance program. And uh, the challenge is, as you mentioned, is getting us together. And that's why we're so excited about being here for the, you know, eight, nine days is that we're going to be together every day, get on the ice and go through some battles here. 2018 Canadian Tire Para Hockey Cup comes to London starting this weekend, 7 o'clock Sunday night. You can make it a double header of hockey with the Knights and the Sting and their teddy bear toss. It'll be Canada and Korea to start things off. Ken, finally, for anyone who maybe has not watched para hockey before, the comparisons to hockey, obviously sticks, puck, ice, all of those sorts of things, but in terms of the way the game is played, how similar would you say it is? Well, you know, all the stuff, like you just mentioned, all the uh, environmental stuff and and, the, and uh, the appearance is the same as any hockey. But when you play the game of para-hockey, it is it is very, very different. It's, uh, you know, you have to do everything with your arms. You skate, you pass, you shoot, you hit with your arms and your uh, upper body. Um, these guys do amazing, um, amazing things in their sleds, and it's fast, high-paced, very, very physical. And uh, there's nowhere really to hide out there. So I think people really enjoy the sport once they watch it. And, you know, it's, uh, we play more a short, a short pass game where it's little handoffs, cross and drops, uh, kind of like uh, back to the old days of the old Soviet Union uh, Red Army teams. That's the kind of style of, of game we try and play because it's so hard to get the puck back. You want to keep it on your stick as long as you can. Now, you're someone who has coached what you would call stand-up hockey, or what the players call stand-up hockey. The transition yeah. for you in figuring out what would work and what wouldn't work, how's that been? Well, I'm learning every day, to be quite honest with you, Mike. And, uh, you know, when I saw, thought about where I started uh, back in 215 in Leduc doing this same tournament, uh, we've come a long way with the program and the skills. And, uh, you know, you learn something new every day, and uh, you apply some of the principles uh, of stand-up hockey, like structure-wise, but you have to modify it to suit the game, uh, to suit uh, sledge hockey and the uh, short sticks and uh, just everything around the game and turning abilities, etc. So, yeah, you learn all the time, and you have to use your players a lot. You have to ask them questions. Would this work? Does this make sense to you? And you really have to work on uh, player input. But motivation is motivation no matter what? Absolutely. These guys are more motivated than uh, some able-bodied uh, stand-up guys I've coached. Well, that is fantastic. Hey, we can't wait to see this arrive. Western Fair is perfectly laid out in terms of the plexiglass bench and all of that stuff. So you'll have lots of creature comforts, and we hope you have a great time. Best of luck against Korea and the United States. We didn't ask about the U.S. How do they look? Well, uh, I haven't seen them since the Paralympic gold medal game, but I'm sure they'll be as good as ever, and uh, we're looking forward to our first game against them. Sounds great. Ken, all the best. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, and appreciate the coverage, and we're really happy to be here in London. Welcome to London, and we'll try and get some sunshine for you before you leave. Oh, that sounds good. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Ken's from Saskatoon, where, you know what, they do get winters. 
They do get some sunshine, though. I mean, we tend to lead the league this time of year and not sunshine. We gotta change that somehow. Or do we? It's just us, right? Right? That's Ken Babby. He is the head coach of Canada's Para Hockey Cup team. And they will be again on the ice all this next week, starting on Sunday and continuing around to Saturday, December 8th. That's a week from Saturday. That'll be the gold medal game. There are three countries taking part, Canada, the United States, and Korea. And as Ken says, Korea is not just an invite to this. Hey, who else could we get? Uh, Korea has it. No, they won bronze in back-to-back tournaments. And this has been a, a very good program, up and coming. Lots of older guys, Canada, lots of young guys, including Tyler McGregor of Forrest. you got to get out and cheer him on. We are going to take a break. Next up, what we are going to do is hear from Jacqueline LaBelle. She'll get you caught up on the day's latest stories. And then we'll head outside the solar system in about 10 minutes from now and try and kind of encapsulate the conversation that's been going on as to whether or not we were visited by some kind of object that may have been made by another civilization. Or whether this was just some kind of rock with a really cool name. Wamuamua. Again, scripts. You got to take that one. You got to put that in front of the kids. You'll knock out a few. Got to whittle that down. Let's take a break. This is London Live. It is brought to you by our good friends at Winmar, your restoration specialists. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We'll be going galactic in five. I don't know if that's a thing. Is going galactic a thing? Was that like from Galaxy when we used to play at the arcades when we were kids? I don't even know if you could go galactic there. I wasn't a big Galaxy player. I grew up in a town of 6,000. The arcade was also a pool hall. And to go there, you had to be able to beat the guys at pool. Then you could go and play the video games. And uh, that just didn't happen. So I didn't play a lot of Galaxy. But I feel like we're going galactic. You know Wumuamua, right? You heard the story about that. This goes back a few weeks ago. I want to get the latest on this because I find it really intriguing. Because we always wonder, is there life out there? That's always been a question. And there was a TED Talk recently that was, you know, kind of disappointing. But it looked at the odds of a civilization. If we were to look at an evolutionary civilization, looked at the odds as to how rare we could be and all of the things that had to go right. I mean, there could still be dinosaurs roaming around here. We've had, what, five extinctions on Earth? Someday we'll figure out how to do it to ourselves, I'm sure. But there could still be dinosaurs rocking around here. And if you showed up, you'd say, ah, not going to stay long here, actually. You know, the, the eating might be good if you can avoid the teeth. But other than that, no, this, this is not a happy place. This is not a productive place. A bunch of big lizards running around. So when you look at the odds of having a civilization like us, it is to the one in a trillion, according to this scientist, one in a trillion, one in a few trillion. It just it doesn't happen. You have to have so many things go right, unless maybe there's another explanation. But what we're going to do is look at whether or not, or what the chances are, that Wamuamua, which was some object that somebody found as it was leaving our solar system, and then went, wait a minute, that's not right. That's that's a weird thing. We've never seen anything like that before. We want to see what the chances are that that could be 
something other than just a, I think it was a cylindrical rock. I think we'll ask that. But I think that's what it was. And it kind of zipped in, went by the sun, was gone. So were we visited by aliens? Our next guest has done a lot of looking into that. In fact, follows all of this stuff incredibly closely. You can find his website at Centauri Dreams. So that's centauri-dreams.org if you want to check while we go away to commercial. And then when we come back, we'll talk with Paul Gilster about whether or not this supposedly, and was it even cylindrical, was it a rock? Was it a, could it have been metal? What, what could it have been? And what it did in our solar system while it was here and what that's done to everybody since. Paul Gilster, next on London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Since I've been calling for the script spelling bee people to take up this particular word, I should probably take a run at it. Oumuamua. Can I have that in a sentence? About a year ago, Muamua entered our solar system. We noticed it on its way out, and now it's gone. Muamua. O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A. All right, I cheated, because it's written right here. But an interstellar object, yes, that's what it was. Got a cool name because it was discovered using a telescope at the Haleakala Observatory in Hawaii. So that's why it got a Hawaiian name, and I believe the name means friendly visitor. I think that's what it is. Joining us right now is someone who has been following this story ever since. You may have seen a lot of noise about it a few weeks ago when a couple of Harvard scientists said, this may not have been your ordinary rock cruising through our solar system. Paul Gilster is with Centauri Dreams, which you can find at centauri-dreams.org online. And Paul, it's great to have you with us to talk about Oumuamua. Like, why don't we start there? Was it a cylindrical, tube-like object? Yeah, the, the shape is, is iffy, Mike, because we don't exactly know what we're looking at. And depending on the uh, the values we place on our observations, the shape could change. But yes, what immediately caught the attention of um, astronomers and people around the world was that it, this object looked to be about 10 times as long as it was wide, aspect ratio of 10 to 1. Uh, that would make it, you know, like a shard, a cylinder, uh, uh, a shape that is not usual. If we look around our solar system, the normal uh, shape range might get us out to three or four to one in terms of length versus width and so on. But this was this was notable uh, because of that. And uh, again, we were we were determining that on the basis of how it seemed to be rotating or in fact, tumbling and making the decision because it changed its reflectivity as it did this. So these, I have to stress, we do not have an image of it. All we ever got to see was a pinpoint of light. We are never able to resolve it and really see what it looked like because we discovered it too late to do that. So are people then imagining what it might have looked like, or is there some math and science that can kind of give us an idea that, it did have this kind of shape. 
Yeah, there is math and science behind this. Uh, the, again, the the changes in reflectivity are notable and and seem to be or can be weighed against the uh, tumbling effect that it has to reach a decision that it it could be something that has that long extreme aspect ratio. Or, in fact, it could be something considerably smaller that is tumbling but is even brighter than we had realized. So much depends on the the shape and size of it. If it's extremely small, then it is quite reflective. If it is something like a couple of hundred meters long, then it's a little bit less reflective because all we have to go on is how bright it appeared. Uh, Mike, remember this. Um, this was discovered, this object called Homuamua. Uh, was discovered um, last October, uh, a year ago, and the survey was looking for things like near-Earth objects and things moving through our sky. Um, They found this object after it had already moved through the inner solar system and was headed back out. So we missed a golden opportunity to see it a little bit closer by the time we actually found it. Again, it was nothing but a pinpoint of light, and it was headed out back out toward the edge of the solar system to where now we can't observe it. So uh, we're working with only a very small set of observations. We're talking with Paul Gilster, author, also writer and editor with Centauri Dreams. You can find that online at centauri-dreams.org. And we're starting our conversation with Oumuamua. Now, people will wonder why the conversation got a little noisier a few weeks ago about this and why it didn't just get loud at the time that it arrived. Paul, why would that be? interesting story here because we could make the assumption that we see small objects in space in our solar system. They're usually either a comet or uh, an asteroid. Uh, Asteroids tend to be much rockier. Uh, Comets have a lot of ices and so on in them, and comets tend to live way, way out on the edge of the solar system, far beyond uh, the, the asteroid belt. So uh, we would look at these any new object that wandered in and say, well, this must be uh, an example of something from another uh, stellar system. It could be, therefore, an asteroid or a comet. And that was the assumption, just an unusual thing that happened to float through our system. However, as we began studying it, um, more information became available. For one thing, as it is leaving the solar system, a very tiny but excess acceleration was detected. And what this means is this object came into our solar system, moved around the sun, and is heading back out. It got a bit of a gravitational nudge from the sun, so it gets some extra speed. So we knew about that. We know how to calculate that. But it's actually accelerating about a tenth of 1% more than we would expect from that particular lift in speed. So that raised a lot of questions. What could be causing this? And one idea which immediately surfaced was, well, if it's a comet, uh, it could be that it got close to the sun, uh, warmed up, and as comets do, started putting off gas that, that it warmed up, and that was giving the extra push. But you see, the problem with that is that the studies that have been done found that there was no cometary tail. Uh, there seems to be no molecules associated with comets uh, anywhere near it. Uh, the idea that it was 
commentary was challenged. It, it just doesn't seem to have normal traits of a comet. Uh, that 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 idea is still there. It could still be a very unusual comet that we just haven't figured out. But the fact that it had these anomalies uh, was something that caught people's eye. This 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 additional acceleration was an unusual thing. And I'll mention something else, Mike. It's interesting that further observations here. We're looking at this, and 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 people studied what would happen if it was simply a comet that was losing material because it warmed up. And that should have really changed its rotation period. This thing was rotating, and it didn't change its its rotation uh, as it should have if it was just kind of random outgassing of this comet. So that raises eyebrows. You say, well, what then could it be? Um, and that has led to further speculation that if it's not a comet that's causing this acceleration, really we're only left with one thing, and that would be the pressure of of light, light photons from the sun, giving it a little bit of extra acceleration as it goes. Sort of like a solar sail does. And we've heard of these. These are things like the Japanese Icarus sail that they launched. Uh, it actually takes momentum from sunlight and, and can get a little acceleration from that that builds up. Um, so what kind of object would this be if it was being pushed a little bit by sunlight, and it was this small. Um, and one possibility, which was uh, determined by Professor Abraham Loeb up at Harvard, was that if it was small and extremely bright, that is to say a very small, thin object, maybe 20 meters to the side, something like a sail in shape, uh, that would account for what we see in the uh, acceleration. Wow. Okay. So, and, and if we put this together, that means it could be made by some other life form. Is that the suggestion here? Dr. Loeb and his uh, co-author on this paper have suggested that among the explanations for Homuamua, we should not rule out the possibility that it may be an artificial object that actually perhaps a, a, a derelict object from another civilization, uh, Conceivably so, and uh, they don't rule it out. I mean, nobody is saying that's what it is because we don't know. But uh, I think it's an important point. Uh, we live in a universe where, based on the latest understanding of planets around other stars, there's probably about one out of every four stars in our galaxy, which is itself 200 billion stars in, in number. But one out of every four of those probably has an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone, so we can't really just rule out the possibility that we might occasionally, someday, possibly run into an artifact. Uh, some There may be uh, other civilizations. Again, uh, no one is saying that's what this is, but it is, in Dr. Loeb's view, one of a range of possibilities that we shouldn't just rule out because it seems outlandish. Wow. We're talking with Paul Gelster. Author, writer, editor with Centauri Dreams. You can find that online at centauri-dreams.org. So, Paul, does this change the way we look at the sky? Does this change the way we look at our own solar system in any way to hope that maybe something like this comes? Or could this be an anomaly that becomes just a paper that in 100 years people look back and say, yeah, too bad we didn't get to find out what that was? Well, we can't rule it out that it could be an anomaly. But on the other hand, Mike, it's, it's a pretty unusual thing because, look, let's say I go on a trip somewhere to a place I've never been. Uh, 
let, yeah, and, and let's say, I, well, I've never been to Australia. Say I go to Australia. And I'm there, and, and it's my first morning in my hotel room. And I open up uh, my window for the first time to look out upon the landscape. And within five minutes, I see a kangaroo. Uh, I'm going to think to myself, well, there must be a lot of kangaroos here because what are the odds on my seeing one this fast? Now, the point about Homuomua is the telescope that picked it up, which was the, the one capable of doing so, um, noticed it within the first eight years of its operation. In other words, it, it's only been in operation for eight years, and yet it still picked one of these up. The implication, if you work out the various mathematical formulae, is that there are probably a whole, an awful lot of these, that probably there are things drifting from other uh, solar systems into our own more than we realize, and that we need to find out uh, how many more there are. Because if we can't keep studying this one because it's, it's gone, it's headed back out, then maybe we can find another one and uh, learn how to keep an eye out for them. And here the good news is that within three years, we have a brand new telescope installation that's called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. It will be able to detect objects far smaller than Homuamua moving in comparable orbits. And we may, within three to four years, be able to suddenly say, well, yes, we're seeing quite a few objects moving through. That would imply, assuming natural phenomena, that would imply that star systems occasionally lose stuff in their outer regions that drifts across to another star at these very slow speeds. And this is very slow, by the way. This is it's moving at 26 kilometers per second, which is fast to us, but in terms of going between two stars... That's moving at a, at a snail's pace. And so uh, there may be a lot of them, and we may know the answer to that within a very short time. Uh, if we do find a lot of them, we could actually send a mission out there to look at one of them, a robotic probe, maybe take pictures of it and see. Wow. Well, Paul, you have talked about some things that are absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for all your time today. I hope we get to talk again. Well, I hope so, too, Mike. You take care, and thanks for having me on. You are welcome. Thanks for being here. Paul Gilster from Centauri Dreams. Find their website, centauri-dreams.org. Hey, I just unveiled the Tory government plan to address climate change. We'll give you the nuts and bolts of it in a moment. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Okay. The Ontario government has revealed their plan to address climate change. You can be on board this. You can say there's no such thing. It doesn't matter. They're doing this. So here are the little golden nuggets from it. They plan to meet the Paris Agreement targets by 2030, which is still kind of a ways away. If we're not careful, the world will have heated up, according to a lot of scientists, um, to the point that we might not be able to reverse the heating. So there's that. Here's the thing that you may be really interested in hearing that you really might not like. They will spend $400 million over four years on the taxpayer-funded Ontario Carbon Trust. Well, what's that going to do? Well, that's going to partner with the private sector on clean technologies. Okay. And this fund is going to have a reverse auction. 
Well, what's that going to do? Well, that's going to ask businesses to bid on government contracts, and then they will award those contracts based on the lowest cost per ton of greenhouse gas emissions. So if I'm kind of slashing through the hot air that continues to rise on our planet, I'm thinking that the government has sat there and said, you know, we've got to do something like this because we can't not. We'll look really bad. But how can we do something and benefit at the same time? I guess I can't fault them. That's what governments try to do. But that seems to be what this is. We'll do something, but let's make sure we're getting something out of it. Eh, Never mind what uh, it's all about. Let's make sure we're getting something, too. More details on that coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle next. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We are going to be talking emergency alert and how that went yesterday and maybe why it is that some people didn't get the alert. But I've just been reading through some things while Jacqueline LaBelle has been doing news Concerning the climate plan of the Ontario government. And, you know, I want this earth to be in good shape because I have kids and one day they may have kids and then I have grandkids. You know, I'm, I'm in that mode. I also appreciate what people say in getting things done now. And we're, we're in a really tough spot. Here's the tough spot. Do we say to businesses, hey, you, you can't do that and you can't do that and you can't do that and risk annoying them to the point that they say, yeah, this this whole Ontario place doesn't have a lot of money, not a lot of incentives coming at me, and they keep poking their finger in my face. I don't think I want to be here. So that's our risk. Or do we say, hey, if we don't make changes globally, then we're going to have a real problem. By about 2040, 2050. Problem like, we'll be missing Miami. We'll be missing Bangkok. They just won't exist. They'll be underwater. Yeah, okay. That's the situation we're in. And here's how I compare it. And this is what makes it so difficult, okay? I want you to picture a subdivision. If if you live in one, it'll be very easy. If you don't, just... Think of a friend who lives in a subdivision, okay? What has happened over the last couple of months? We have had leaves fall off trees, and those leaves have collected on front yards, right? Well, if you go out and you rake up all your leaves, and you put them in bags, and you leave them where you're supposed to at the curb, and they get collected and they get taken away, and yet you are one of the few people in your subdivision who has raked leaves, what happens after another three days? Well, your lawn's full of leaves again because the wind blows leaves from everybody else's lawn back onto yours. And then what do you do? Well, you go out, you rake up all the leaves, you put them in the bags, and you put them out. And then three days later, because no one else has done it, there's more leaves on your lawn again. That's the kind of thing that we live in right now where the entire earth would have to get on board the same thing. And that's why we did have the Paris Agreement. That's why we did have targets set out. We've had the Kyoto Agreement. We've had targets set out. But unless everybody jumps on board the same train car at the same time, we're just the person in the subdivision with the leaves. And if you're the one that collects them up, 
and puts them to the end of the curb, you're doing your job. But because other people aren't doing theirs, you keep getting leaves on your lawn. You keep getting blown by. You keep doing the work while no one else is. And it's not making a difference. That's one of the biggest problems in the fight against climate change. And one last word before we go to another topic entirely. Just because it is snowing in November does not mean that we don't have global warming. That's a different thing. Yeah, but it's snowing. It's not getting hotter. Different thing. This is, that's, we'll have to talk about this in greater length. But it is a very tricky situation that we're in. Do we play for now? Or do we play for 20 years from now? 20 years from now is going to come. Time is just a thing that passes. And right now, we've got an Ontario government that wants to make sure they get reelected, And they have a real shot at it. Because the last government left this province in the dumpster with a fire. So this government has a big opportunity. And they're going to take full advantage. And they're going to do some things that make this province look really good come four years from now. And they'll probably get back in. It's the way the whole cycle of this province has gone for a long time. And I don't begrudge them that. But eventually, you've got to coordinate it so that everybody is picking up their leaves at the same time. And we're far from that. And right now, it appears the Ontario government is doing their best to help out businesses at taxpayer expense. Hey, how can we get something out of this for people? How can, how can we get something out of this for business? We want to want to show all of the growth in business. What if we had this, uh, oh, I don't know, Ontario Carbon Trust, where it was taxpayer funded, and then we could have partnerships with the private sector on clean technologies and make lots of great announcements and make it look like things are booming? Am I being cynical to think that way? We'll talk more about it in just a little bit. Right now, I want to check in on yesterday's emergency test. Because we had it, and you know what? You heard it on 980CFPL. We made the rounds, and I got mine, and the newsroom was holding up phones. Just about everybody in the newsroom got theirs, but not everybody did. We got emails from people who did not. Joining us right now is Martin Belanger, who is the Director of Public Alerting at Palmerex. And he is back on London Live after an appearance earlier this week. Martin, thanks so much for being here. No problem. Let's talk about the test itself. If you look back to yesterday, how would you say it went? Yeah, we, we look back at all the tests because it was done uh, nationally. So it was in, in Ontario, but also all the other provinces. And uh, the test itself of the alert ready system was successfully completed um, because we have confirmation that uh, the test was created by the emergency management officials. It was distributed over TV, radio, and the compatible um, devices uh, by the operators in each province. So from, from our perspective, um, it, was, uh, it was a successful test, and definitely we got a much better response of people having received the alert on their compatible device this time compared to last May. And you know what? Just our little straw poll showed the exact same thing, that you had a lot more people saying, yeah, 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 I got it this time when I didn't get it last time. So that's, that's obviously a positive. Any idea why maybe there was more success this time? Um, back in May, there were some some distribution issues with some of the carriers, um, and those were addressed right after the uh, the test in May. So this time around, and that's why we had some successful real alerts, real emergencies over the summer in Ontario. So uh, I think it's uh, 
it's uh, in the same line. Uh, this test uh, was more successful in the sense that um, the, all the carriers and all the different partners were ready for the test, and those were sent out to all the uh, the public. So that's why I think we're seeing more positive responses on social media and also all the calls and the emails uh, that we are receiving from the public to let us know that, yes, I did receive it. And uh, it's, a, it's a great thing because, in a way, it raises awareness that there's a system in place. So in case of a real emergency, people can rely on either their device or the radio or television to receive that critical information. Martin Belanger, Director of Public Alerting at Pelmerex, joining us to talk about yesterday's emergency test. Martin, we got a, a great theory from Glenn yesterday, wondering if maybe the people that didn't get it, could it have been because of something like LTE coverage on their phone? Does that matter? Uh, it could have been, yes. Actually, that's a really uh, important factor. So you may have a phone, but that phone doesn't mean that it is compatible to receive an emergency alert. Uh, and you need to be connected to LTE. So if it's 3G, you may not receive it. It's actually, it has to be what we call 4G or LTE. And it depends on a number of other factors. Is your software on your device up-to-date? Um, does it have some settings that maybe are turned off? Uh, for example, if you put it on Do Not Disturb, you may not realize that you have received the alert. It is on your phone, but maybe you didn't hear the tone or you didn't see it. So those are all factors that may explain why someone did or did not receive the alert. So in other words, instead of saying, ah, and throwing your arms in the air and saying, I didn't get the alert, it's, uh, this is no good, it could be your phone. Maybe you need to look at what is activated and, and what maybe isn't updated on your own phone. That's correct. And, and the other important factor to, to remember is the phone, obviously everyone has a phone, and that's a great way to reach uh, to the public in case of emergency, but that's not the only way of getting that alert. That's why there's still radio, there's still television. And, and you know what? We've heard from people that said, you, I didn't necessarily get it on my phone, but someone just next to me got it. And that's that tap on the shoulder to say something's happening, please check and, and, and take the, the, the actions necessary to, to stay safe. In the case of the test, no action was required, but um, at least as long as people are aware of, the, of, of an alert, uh, that's really what the, the, um, the purpose of the system is about, is to share that critical information. Now, if we look at the critical information, and let's kind of rewind things, it's good to know that it's going through to a greater extent, or like you say, make sure you look at the updates on your phone, make sure you are connected to LTE, that can make a difference, or make sure you're connected to 4G, that can make a difference. But overall, if we look at the establishment of this across the country, what sorts of things are you looking to be able to put through on these alerts whenever they might come up? So, and, and that's really determined by the authorities. So those are, for example, the government agencies, uh, whether it's the uh, emergency management officials in Ontario or Environment Climate Change Canada uh, for a tornado warning. They're the ones that are really determining the content, the alert itself, where it will be sent, and what kind of instructions need to be sent to the public so that you and I, if we do receive a, an alert, will know exactly what to do to stay safe. So it could be for a number of reasons. A tornado, it could be for a number alert, could be for... Uh, some kind of catastrophe. So um, the system is in place so that in case there's a risk for life, the authorities can send an alert quickly uh, on all the mediums possible so that people can can take the necessary action. So um, that's really the responsibility of the authorities uh, to figure out what type of alert and when to send it. So if you didn't receive the alert, is there anything that you should do outside of just checking on your phone and making sure that it's not on Do Not Disturb or making sure that you didn't receive it, it just didn't pop up on your home screen? 
That's the main thing is if you didn't receive it on your mobile device, um, it's important to go check first if you have a compatible uh, mobile device. And if you do, um, if there's a specific question, uh, they can always check with their provider uh, specifically about why they may not have received it. Uh, they are the best uh, people group uh, that can help people understand why an alert or the test alert may not have been received. Excellent. Martin, thank you so much for joining us all this week and helping to explain how this all works. My pleasure. Have a good one. Take care. That is Martin Belanger, Director of Public Alerting at Palmerex. So, Glenn, Glenn, you nailed it. You need to be connected to LTE or 4G, and if you're not, there's a chance you didn't receive the alert. So that's something to look into. Updates on your phone, make sure it is updated. And you know what? Martin raised a really good point. If you were to be sitting somewhere in any kind of public space, or maybe not even in a public space, maybe you're alone in your home, and all of a sudden it goes zzz, and you look down and it says emergency alert, and I don't know, extraterrestrials, Can we, that would be there, or a meteor, or even something that, let's face it, is a lot more plausible, like a tornado, like a hurricane, an amber alert that you need to know about. If something like that were to pop up, then what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to text your loved ones, your friends, saying, hey, did you get this? Hey, do you see what's happening here? That's kind of on the rest of us. So to fill in the holes, because there have been holes, as Martin said, this time around, a lot of the providers were ready for it. Maybe last time there was some issue in communication. This time around, it did work a whole lot better across the country, but there are always going to be holes. You know what a hole is? Me charging my phone at home. Yeah, I texted you about four hours ago. Yeah, I put my phone on the charger and I haven't been upstairs since. Oh, okay. That's why you have to make sure you get in touch with people, fill in those holes if it is something that is that drastic. Let's take a break. Up next, we are going to talk about something very important. It is a deadline in the Dream Lottery. If you want to get in on all the early bird draws, need some cash for the holidays. I know I do. You do? Yeah? Okay, well, then you need to be ready because there's another deadline for the Dream Lottery. Rita Feeder is in the station today, and she is going to pop into the studios here at Global News Radio 980 CFPL, and she will let us know what we need to know about this latest deadline. And still to come, we'll talk about the lighting of the lights, the Santa house. We can still talk climate change. And I want to tell you about a couple of researchers who have done something that you should never do. And yet, I don't know how their research is working out because they're kind of imitating what a one-year-old or someone who's under a year old would do, and they're grown men. I, I don't get it. I'll have that in about, uh, let's call it 15 minutes. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. It still is. It's not minus 25. Huh? We have that going for us. Still to come, some climate change stuff. Why grown men are swallowing toys. Don't be like them. They're scientists. Don't worry. They're scientists. I hope they're not getting funding for this. Right now, though, let's talk about something very happy. Because one of the happiest people we know is here with us in studio. Rita Feeder is joining us from the Dream Lottery. Rita, how are things? 
Things are good, and we have another deadline coming up at midnight tonight. Fantastic, and we always hear good things about early birds. It's good to be early birds. Years ago, you could get the worm. I don't know if you can still get a worm. I don't know if you want to get a worm. We can get some really good things if we are early birds this time around. What can we get? Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't need a little bit of cash before Christmas? And this early bird draw is all about cash, cash, cash. A hundred winners, we're going to award you cash before Christmas. Really? And can we ask how much cash? We will be giving away $500. We will be giving away $5,000. And we'll be giving away $10,000. And it's varying amounts to 100 winners. But it sounds like you have to be that early bird. Ignore the worm. Go for the cash. And you have to have your tickets now. Midnight tonight or you're out for the early bird draws. Okay, that's no good because you want to be in on all the draws. If you buy early, you have more chances to win. So if you're going to get a ticket, why wouldn't you get it before midnight tonight? And this is not just for a draw for 500 or $5,000 or $10,000. This gets us in for... All the remaining draws, which, I mean, we've got vehicles, we've got vacations, we've got more cash, and we have one of two dream homes or one million cash. Can we still tour through the dream homes? You certainly can. They are still open, and you want to go see these homes because they are phenomenal. But as we start to wrap up the dream lottery, those doors will close. But more importantly, get that ticket before midnight tonight. Rita Feeder in studio with us on London Live talking about the Dream Lottery. So get that ticket before midnight tonight, as Rita says. You can get in on all the early bird stuff. Then let's cover it off. How do we get the ticket? You can go to dreamatwinit.ca, a local shopper's drug mart. Go out to the Dream Home or call 519-488-7100. And when do the draws happen? So the draws will happen on December 13th for the early bird, which is also the day we will be wrapping up the Dream Lottery. Amazing. Rita, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right. Big hand for Rita Feeder in studio with us on London Live. Get your early bird tickets, then you are in on absolutely Everything. Hey, got a note from, and I want to go back to this note from Shane, who had a good point on the emergency alert because he looked back to yesterday and he said he was in his office at work, could hear the phones going off outside my door. There's a seating area for students to see that. So he says, even if my phone didn't get the alerts, you heard something was going on. This would prompt someone to ask somebody else what's happening what's that sound why is everybody's phone going off at the same time and then you would all look down and go oh oh it's a tornado go back to work but you get the picture if there's a tornado and it's heading toward you you don't have to go back to work do we even know what to do i don't know that we do enough practicing of that anymore remember all the practicing you had to do at school when you were younger we used to do a lot of practicing i mean i never understood the whole Back when the nuclear arms race started, what, we're talking 60s? Maybe even, could we say 50s? Probably even 50s? Would have been right after the Second World War. If you talk to anybody who had gone through that, and you know it if you did, all right, kids, let's get into our position. If there is a nuclear war, what do you do? Well, we hide under our desks. Yeah, because... Why do you hide under your desk? What do you mean, hide under your desks? Kids, there's not much you can do. You might as well just sit and keep writing P, P, P. Cursive, children, cursive. What would you do? Hiding under the desks wasn't it. But did we have a tornado thing? I'm sure they still have fire drills every once in a while. In fact, I do know that they have fire drills. But what would we do if there was a tornado heading to us? Does your building have a basement? Could everybody in your building fit? 
into the basement? Because a tornado, you do what? You go underneath the stairs. Isn't that the safest spot? You're supposed to find stairs, not on a top floor, but somewhere in the basement, and then you go and you crouch underneath those until the storm passes. I think that's we We need more tests. Maybe we don't just need emergency alerts. Maybe we need to go through this whole thing. What if there is this? What do you do? We do it with fire drills. I don't think we do it with enough of anything else. I don't know. Maybe we have too many tests these days. Maybe that's our problem. Too much stress. Coming up on the show, we are going to be in conversation with someone who is instrumental in the lighting of the lights, which comes up tomorrow. We'll talk about a couple of scientists who better not be getting money for their science project that involves eating children's toys. That's not very holiday-ish. But that's what they've been doing, and we'll let you know what it is that they've tried to get themselves up to. But, yeah, we'll talk about lighting of the lights, we'll talk about the Santa house, and we'll talk with someone who has benefited from the generosity of others during his life. And I can't wait. I can't wait for the conversation. It comes up in 10 minutes from now. Up next, we will have Jacqueline LaBelle. She has the day's latest stories, because you are listening to London Live. It's brought to you by our friends at Winmar. On Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We tend to count on scientists, right? They're important people. Without scientists, we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have. We wouldn't have a lot of the know-how that we have. We probably wouldn't be all that knowledgeable about climate change. So, we wouldn't really be paying that much attention to the Ontario government revealing their plan to address climate change. Scientists wouldn't have discovered it yet. And then we have researchers who do this. They have decided to test out children's toys to see just how easily small, smooth plastic objects pass through the human body. Well, this isn't right at all. What they have done, and it started kind of with a bunch of little Lego heads, is they have eaten them and then timed how long the Lego heads took to pass through their bodies. Because it happens with kids. Our son ate a shoe, a little Polly Pocket shoe. We thought, what do we do? I don't know how old he was. He was—he spent like two weeks of his life crawling. It was during the two weeks. And then he started walking, and then he started running. He hasn't stopped since. But it was a little Polly Pocket shoe, and my wife and I stood there. Had it been our first child, you know what we would have done. Hello, 911. Our son just swallowed a shoe, and we would have been off to the hospital. By the time your second child comes, eh, let's wait. Might come out in the diaper. So that's what we did, and it did. I think it took about a day. It's pretty impressive, actually. Although my wife threw it out. I wish we would have kept that. Would have used it at his wedding. But these guys decided they were going to see how long the little Lego plastic heads would take to come through their systems. And they came up with between 1.1 day spans and 3 days. The average, 1.7. I'm not going to tell you about the fart scale that they came up with. You can use your own imagination. But they did look at other items that kids 
would perhaps consume. Now, they decided not to, but what she wanted to do, one of the authors, and this wasn't just guys. Uh, One of the authors is named Grace Leo. She said what she really hoped that this did was raise attention among parents that if their children swallow things that are sharp, if they swallow things that are longer than five centimeters, wider than two and a half centimeters, that are magnets, coins, button batteries, or if they start experiencing pain after swallowing anything, that you do seek medical attention. So that's ultimately what they were trying to do was, with their research, that I'm not sure whether or not this was funded by anybody, draw attention to this so that parents did go and seek medical attention. Do you remember the Saturday Night Live skit that used Chip from Kate and Alley? Oh, that's going back, isn't it? Remember the sitcom Kate and Alley? The little guy, on his name was Chip, and he ate refrigerator magnets because they were shaped like ice cream and french fries and things like that, and it was ways to find that your child had been eating refrigerator magnets and it would have Chip standing on a street corner and it would say things like, he continues to turn to the north and he would like rotate without even moving his feet and would turn to the north, uh, going to magnetic north and then eventually he, I don't know, he ran into a box of knives or something. It was Saturday Night Live, something like that's going to happen. But this is what they were ultimately trying to do. But they did eat little Lego heads, which they have said, do not consume at home. These these were scientists in the spirit of science doing this. A whole lot of science went into creating the light bulb, and tomorrow a whole lot of light bulbs are going to be turned on at Victoria Park. We're going to talk with someone who is instrumental in making that happen next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Tomorrow becomes... A big night in the city of London. The annual tradition, the lighting of the lights at Victoria Park. Free to go to, happens right before the night's game. 6.15. Lights will be turned on at 6.50, by the way. So it works out perfectly. Catch the lighting of the lights, head over to Budweiser Gardens. So 6.15, all of the official opening of Winter Wonderland begins. But the actual switch flip is at 6.50 p.m. And, of course, in Victoria Park right now, we have the Santa House. We have all kinds of bulbs that have been put in place. And someone who has been instrumental in the Santa House, certainly, but in getting things together for the winter wonderland at Victoria Park is Leo Larisi, who is part of the Terracina Larisi charity. Leo, thanks so much for taking some time out for us today. Hey, Mike, good. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me here today. Let's, uh, before we even get to the lights themselves, let's talk about the Santa House, because this year the Santa House is being dedicated in loving memory of Lauren Edgerton. Yes, yes. Lauren was uh, a beautiful four-year-old who uh, who battled cancer for most of her life, and she lost her, her battle uh, in September, and I was very close with Lauren. And... Um, but for you know for the for the time that she was suffering we tried to do the our best to put smiles on her face and we sent her on trips and we sent her to shows and her favorite things and we did a lot for Lauren and uh, I wanted to dedicate it in memory of her uh, so people realize that all the funds raised at Santa's house go to help children like Lauren now people may see Santa's house in Victoria Park when you're looking at raising funds using Santa house how does that happen 
Well, we ask people, uh, because we're not a business, uh, we ask people for donations. So you come into Santa Cells, make a donation to the charity, and with that donation, you get a picture uh, with Santa, and you get the picture right away. You don't have to come back. And that's how we raise money. So it's all about kids giving back to kids. Get your picture with Santa, make a donation, and you're going to help us help kids, not just at Christmas, but all year long. Now, are there times in the very near future when Santa is due to be at Santa's house? Well, he's going to arrive tomorrow after the lighting of the lights at uh, at 7 o'clock, and the house will be open, uh, officially open at 7 o'clock. And then he's going to be there uh, every day from 6 to 9, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 1 to 4, and 6 to 9. Fantastic. We're talking with Leo Larisi from the Terracina Larisi Charity, and we're talking about Santa's house. Leo, take us back to the conception of Santa's house, because it hasn't always been a part of the wonder, winter wonderland at Victoria Park, but now it's become a real key fixture. Well, yes. You know, uh, four years ago, I had this vision of how do I get kids to give back to kids? How can we make this a magical uh, thing? So I came up with the Santa's house at Victoria Park. And I brought it to uh, the city. Matt Brown was a huge uh, supporter of it, and they made it happen. Uh, but my friend Dominic Mesha, who is the president of Domus Development, it was him that actually built this house for me because I just had this idea. And he says, okay, I'm going to build you this amazing house, which comes apart every year. It's a lot of work putting it together. But um, when I went to him with the idea, he jumped on it, and then everybody else in the city um, there were so many wonderful contractors, uh, North Pole Trim and Supplies. They were so big on it that they donated a lot of material. Cops build all. I could go on, Ankton Electric. I could go on and on, and I don't want to miss anybody, but there were so many people involved in, in donating their time and their services to get the house built. And then once we had it built, we had to get people to operate. So Fanshawe College Photography, wonderful, wonderful program they have, and they volunteer all their students come out and take the pictures all on both and they're all volunteering. And, and again, everybody that's involved is volunteering your time because they believe in helping kids. We're talking with Leo Larisi, talking about Santa's house and also the lighting of the lights, which takes place tomorrow. And as Leo says, Santa will arrive just after that and be there in the house so that you can have pictures taken. And again, everything this year is done in memory of Lauren Edgerton, who unfortunately was lost to us at the age of four. Leo, where in, in your life did you make the decision to do what you're doing now? Well, I was, uh, I was an eight-year-old boy, and I remember uh, being devastated at Christmas time because our parents, you know, we, we didn't have any money. My parents didn't have any, um, any money for presents, so we had to go to this church. And I remember getting a box, and, and it kind of said Boy 8 on it. And I was very excited for that gift. It's Christmas. And on Christmas Day, when I opened up the box, it was a, a puzzle of a nature theme, and I was very devastated. And, and you know, that kind of stuck in my head going, you know what, don't just give a, a, a child a gift just to give them a gift. Give, you know, it's, I rather had not received anything to get that gift because you go back to school the following week and everybody's saying, hey, what would you get for Christmas? You know, um, so that stuck in my head. And my mother had always taught me, you know what, um, give to other people. So when I was a teenager, 16 years old, I started visiting the, the hospital on Christmas Eve to give gifts to kids. And I would, you know, I would uh, sponsor two or three families. And I would just go to people and say, hey, can you, know, can you donate $20 to me? I want to help this family and so on. And uh, you know what? It just grew into something I never thought would grow into. And today, you know, we're at, on Christmas Eve, we're delivering to almost 800 children. And, um, 
you know, and we're delivering gifts to every child uh, that's in the hospital on Christmas Eve, as well as we do this all year round. In fact, right now I'm at the hospital going to see a little girl that needs, uh, we need to put a smile on her face. So, um, so it just grew, and I can't tell you how and why, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Leo, you have one of the biggest hearts in London. You really do, but you tell a story that would make most people say, you know what, I'm, forget it. I, you know, the, the bitterness would creep in. How did you keep that from happening, even at the age of eight? Well, you know what? Again, it's my mother, and, and you say that I have a big heart. My heart's the same as yours. You know, it's just how you use it. And my mother taught me, like I said, we grew up poor. She was an angel. And she, she got a birthday present one year, and again, we didn't have anything. And she took that birthday present and gave it to somebody else. And I remember being angry with her, saying, Mom, why, you know, I'm a young kid. Why are you doing that? You need that. And she yelled at me. She got mad. She says, Leo, there's always somebody that needs it more than, than you think. And that instilled in me. And, um, but again, if it wasn't for the awesome people of London that support my charity, uh, I couldn't do this. And, and, and London's got a big heart, and I've got great supporters. And Santa's House is a big fundraiser for me, and it, it, last year it was, it, was huge. it was a big success, and I hope this year it's even, it's even a bigger success. When you talk about putting it together and then seeing what it's grown to and seeing how many people you can now help at the holidays, what's that like, seeing the growth of what's happened? Well, it's, it's really rewarding. Um, but it, you know, it has its challenges. Uh, it, it, it sometimes it's, you know, I have I have to be at my job and I have the charity and your home life and putting everything together. But you know what? When I go walk into a hospital and I see a child that's terminally ill and they're battling and they're fighting, uh, whatever you want to throw at me, I look at that and go, if they can do this, you know, if they can try to fight this, then whatever challenges I have is easy. And um, and again, it's the great people of London. Without their support, I, I you know, I couldn't do it. Leo Larissa with us. Leo is with the Teresina Larisa Charity, and tomorrow night, Santa's house will be part of the lighting of the lights at Victoria Park as the Winter Wonderland theme begins. And then, Leo, could you run through one more time when Santa will be at Santa's house so kids can come and take a picture? Sure. So tomorrow he's, he's going to show up at 7 p.m., and he'll be there for two or three hours, how long he needs to be there to get uh, photos with all the kids. And then uh, starting Saturday, um, 6 to 9, every, every night. And then Friday, Saturday, Sundays uh, will be 1 to 4, 6 to 9. Okay. Leo, can't thank you enough for what you do in this community. And thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Michael, thank you very much. And l- allow me to talk about Santa's house. And I urge all Londoners, please come out. This is, a ki- it's, this is the true meaning of Christmas is in Victoria Park, Santa's house. Leo, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Michael. Leo Larizzi. From the Teresina Larisi Charity. He's the guy who could have said, forget this. And instead, I mean, he has one of the greatest stories. At 16 years old, he's starting to look at, how can I make a difference? Or the story about his mom who receives a gift and says, hey, there's always somebody who needs it more. You know, we spend so much time in our lives, especially today, because it's so easy to accumulate stuff. And... You can do it simply by jumping online, ordering something. Two days later, it's on your doorstep. It's too easy. And then you have all that stuff. And then eventually you get to a point in your life where either you have to get rid of it or somebody else has to get rid of it because you're no longer around to make use of it. It's a weird cycle that we run ourselves through, isn't it? It really is. 
I need all this stuff. Can't wait to have more of this stuff. Was it A.J. Toynbee who wrote, He Who Dies With The Most Toys Wins? And it was basically a tongue-in-cheek of somebody accumulating all this stuff. I'm going to look that up. Let's take a break. I want to make sure I get the right author as far as He Who Dies With The Most Toys Wins. And if there is the essay attached to it, I'll tweet it out because it is worth a read. It really is, especially at this time of year, especially with the way we, we deal with stuff now. You know, and eventually all of it gets put into boxes and donated somewhere or just thrown out. That's ultimately what happens to every little bit of our stuff. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, I looked it up. It wasn't Toynbee. It actually was originally attributed to mean what it said because it was originally attributed to Malcolm Forbes, creator of Forbes magazine, who died a millionaire a few times over. And apparently he meant it to be, hey, he who dies with the most toys wins. And now we look at it in a much different light. The line is still, he who dies with the most toys wins. But you've had a lot of essays since then knocking it back, saying, yeah, that's, you know, one of the the best answers was, he who dies with the most toys still dies. So what are you doing at the end of it? Because that's ultimately what you look back on. At the end of it, what is it that you have done to make a difference? And that's why you look at people like Leo Larizzi, who's making sure he's making a difference right now. Great part of this community. So... That was the the line, he who dies with the most toys wins. So it actually was meant to say that. Malcolm Forbes came up with that. Not anymore. And you know what? The next generation is becoming less and less like this. And they will be. Because think about being in the next generation. What if you are right now in your early 20s? Are you thinking homeownership? Why would you be? What? Home's going to run you $350,000 for a fixer-upper? Isn't that what we're at? If you want to move to Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, good luck. You know, house prices are are astronomically too high, and yet they continue to rise. We've never seen a real decrease. We've seen a couple of little settlings in the house market, but you're never going to go back to the day, I don't think, not without a huge problem where a house is worth under $100,000 if it has all of its walls and a roof. And you're never going to go back to the day when you could buy one for $10,000. Now, inflation's changed things a little bit, but seriously, we've got people who are coming into a major part of their life where they are the decision makers, where they are the ones who are buying all of the toys, and yet they may not be willing to do as much buying of toys. They may be happy with two pairs of shoes. They may not be looking for the 14th pair. They may not be looking for the mansion in the hills because they're happy with where they live right now because they have a nice, comfortable space and they enjoy it. It isn't about he who dies with the most toys wins anymore because Mr. Forbes died and all of his toys are now elsewhere, donated or thrown in a bin. Easy as that. All right, on that high note, let's leave the show today. Tomorrow on the show, we are going to be talking with former NHL goaltender Curtis Joseph. He will join us. And I guess in this same vein, we're going to speak with someone who is in that part of their life, early 20s, and has decided, you know what? I'm going to take everything that I got 
and forget about it. I'm going to buy a vehicle, and I'm just, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. And I can't wait to get her thoughts on life. So that's coming up tomorrow on the show. As well, we may be able we'll, I don't know if we can do this. Have you seen what Hedy's is? Hedy's where it's like ping pong, but you're heading kind of a soccer ball back and forth. I want to learn more about that. I don't think it's a game you're going to play this weekend, but we'll at least get the rules established. Apparently it's new. London Live is brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist. Thank you to Jacqueline Carbone for her help today, to Devin Peacock. Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick are next with news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.